0: Section twenty two of the Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. Edited by Henry Festing Jones. Chapter seventeen. Material for a projected sequel to Alps and Sanctuaries. Part one mrs doe on alps and sanctuaries after reading alps and sanctuaries mrs doe said to ballard you seem to hear him talking to you all the time you are reading i don't think i ever heard a criticism of my books which pleased me better especially as mrs doe is one of the women i have always liked not to be omitted i must get in about the people one meets the man who did not like parrots because they were too intelligent and the man who told me that Handel's Messiah was tre chic and the smell of cyclamen's stupendous in the man who thought it was hard to think the world was not more than six thousand years old and we encouraged him by telling him we thought it must be even more than seven thousand and the English lady who said of someone that being an artist you know of course he had a great deal of poetical feeling and the man who was sketching and said he had a very good eye for color in the light but would i be good enough to tell him what color was best for the shadows an amateur he said might do very decent things in watercolor but oils require genius so i said what is genius millet's picture of the angelus sold for seven hundred thousand francs now that he said is genius after which i was very civil to him at bellinzona a man told me that one of the two towers was built by the Visconti, and the other by julius caesar a hundred years earlier so poor old mrs barrett at langer could conceive no longer time than a hundred years the trojan war did not last ten years but ten years was as big a lie as homer knew we went over the abula pass to st moritz in two diligences and could not settle which was tonic and which was dominant But the carriage behind us was the relative minor there was a picture in the dining room but we could not get near enough to see it we thought it must be either christ disputing with the doctors or louis the sixteenth saying farewell to his family or something of that sort the sacro monte at Varese. the sacro monte is a kind of ecclesiastical rocherville gardens eminently the place to spend a happy day the processions were best at the last part of the ascent there were pilgrims all decked out with colored feathers and priests and banners and music and crimson and gold and white and glittering brass against the cloudless blue sky the old priest sat at his open window to receive the offerings of the devout as they passed but he did not seem to get more than a few bambini modeled in wax perhaps he was used to it and the band played the Baroque music on the Baroque little piazza and we were all Baroque together it was as though the clergymen at ladywell had given out that instead of having service as usual the congregation would go in procession to the crystal palace with all their traps and that the band had been practicing wait till the clouds roll by for some time and on sunday as a great treat they should have it the pope has issued an order saying he will not have masses written like operas it is no use. The Pope can do much, but he will not be able to get contrapunctual music into Verace. He will not be able to get anything more solemn than La Fille de Madame Angot into Verace. As for fugues, I would as soon take an English bishop to the Surrey pantomime as to the Sacromonte on a festa. Then the pilgrims went into the shadow of a great rock behind the sanctuary, spread themselves out over the grass, and dined the albergo grata crimea the entrance to this hotel at Shivena is through the covered courtyard steps lead up to the roof of the courtyard which is a terrace where one dines in fine weather a great tree grows in the courtyard below its trunk pierces the floor of the terrace and its branches shade the open-air dining-room the walls of the house are painted in fresco with a check pattern like the late lord brougham's trousers and there are also pictures one represents Mendelssohn. he is not called Mendelssohn, but i knew him by his legs he is in the costume of a dandy of some five and forty years ago is smoking a cigar and appears to be making an offer of marriage to his cook footnote ramblings in cheapside in essays on life art and science and footnote down below is a fresco of a man sitting on a barrel with a glass in his hand A more absolutely worldly-minded uncultured individual it would be impossible to conceive when i saw these frescoes i knew i should get along all right and not be overcharged public opinion the public buys its opinions as it buys its meat or takes in its milk on the principle that it is cheaper to do this than to keep a cow so it is but the milk is more likely to be watered these notes I make them under the impression that i may use them in my books but i never do unless i happen to remember them at the right time when i wrote ramblings in cheapside in the universal review reprinted in essays on life art and science the preceding note about public opinion would have come in admirably it was in my pocket in my little black notebook but i forgot all about it till i came to post my pocketbook into my notebook the wife of bath there are canterbury pilgrims every sunday and summer who start from close to the old tabard only they go by the southeastern railway and come back the same day for five shillings and what is more they are just the same sort of people if they do not go to canterbury they go by the clacton bell to clacton on the sea there is not a sunday the whole summer through but you may find all chaucer's pilgrims man and woman for man and woman On board the Lord of the Isles or the Clacton Bell why I have seen the wife of bath on the Lord of the Isles myself she was eating her luncheon off an alley slopers half-holiday which was spread out upon her knees whether it was I who had had too much beer or she I cannot tell God knoweth and whether or no I was caught up into paradise again I cannot tell but I certainly did hear unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter and that not above fourteen years ago but the very last sunday that ever was the wife of bath heard them too but she never turned a hair luckily i had my detective camera with me so i snapped her there and then she put her hand up to her mouth at that very moment and rather spoiled herself but not much eighteen ninety one horace at the post-office in rome when i was in rome last summer whom should i meet but horace i did not know him at first but told him inquiringly that the post office was in the piazza venzia he smiled benignly shrugged his shoulders and said prego and pointed to the post office itself which was over the way and of course in the piazza san silvestro then i knew him i believed he went straight home and wrote an epistle to masnans or whatever the man's name was, asking how it comes about that people who travel hundreds of miles to see things can never see what is all the time under their noses. In fact, I saw him take out his notebook and begin making notes at once. He need not talk. He was not a good man of business, and I do not believe his books sold much better than my own. But this does not matter to him now, for he has not the faintest idea that he ever wrote any of them, and, more likely than not, has never even refreshed his memory by reading them beethoven at fado and at boulogne i have twice seen people so unmistakably like beethoven just as madame Petet is unmistakably like handel and only once dressing in costume to be the image of him not in features only but in figure and air and manner that i always think of them as beethoven once at fado in the val levantina in 1876 or 1877 when the engineers were there surveying for the tunnel there was among them a rather fine-looking young german with wild ginger hair that rang out to the wild sky like the bells in in memoriam and a strong edmund gurney cut footnote edmund gurney the author of the power of sound and secretary of the society for psychical research and footnote who played wagner and was great upon the overture to lohengrin As for Handel, he was not worth consideration etc well this young man rather took a fancy to me and I did not dislike him but one day to tease him I told him that a little insignificant looking engineer the most commonplace mortal imaginable who was sitting at the head of the table was like Beethoven he was very like him indeed and Mueller saw it smiled and flushed at the same time he was short getting on in years and was a little thick though not fat a few days afterwards he went away and muller and I happened to meet his box an enormous cube of a trunk coming down the stairs that's beethoven's box said muller to me oh i said and looking at it curiously for a moment asked gravely and is he inside it it seemed to fit him and to correspond so perfectly with him in every way that one felt as though if he were not inside it he ought to be the second time was at boulogne this spring there were three germans at the hotel de paris who sat together went in and out together smoked together and did everything together as though they were a unity in trinity and a trinity in unity we settled that they must be the heckman quartet minus heckman we had not the smallest reason for thinking this but we settled it at once the middle one of these was like beethoven also on easter sunday after dinner when he was little well it was after dinner and his hair went rather mad jones said to me do you see that beethoven has got into the posthumous quartet stage 1855 silvio in the autumn of 1884 butler spent some time at promontagno and solglio in the val Bragaglia, sketching and making notes among the children of the italian families in the albergo was silvia a boy of ten or twelve he knew a little English and was very fond of poetry he could repeat how doth the little busy be the poem which pleased him best however was hey diddle diddle the cat and the fiddle the cow jumped over the moon they had nothing he said in Italian literature so good as this Silvio used to talk to Butler while he was sketching and shall you read Longfellow much in England no I replied I don't think we read him very much But how is that? He is a very pretty poet. Oh, yes, but I don't greatly like poetry myself. Why don't you like poetry? You see, poetry resembles metaphysics. One does not mind one's own, but one does not like anyone else's. Oh, and what you call metaphysic? This was too much. It was like the lady who attributed the decline of the Italian opera to the fact that singers would no longer podge their voices. And what? pray is podging inquired my informant of the lady why don't you understand what podging is well I don't know what that I can exactly tell you but I am sure Edith and Blanche podge beautifully however I said that metaphysics were la philosophia and this quieted him he left poetry and turned to prose then you shall like much the works of Washington Irving I was grieved to say that I did not but I dislike Washington Irving so cordially that I determined to chance another no Then you shall like better Fenimore Cooper I Was becoming reckless I could not go on saying no after no and yet to ask me to be ever so little Enthusiastic about Fenimore Cooper was laying a burden upon me heavier than I could bear so I said I did not like him Oh, I see said the boy then it is uncle Tom's cabin that you shall like Here I gave in more no's I could not say So, thinking I might as well be hung for a sheep as for a mutton-chop, I said that I thought Uncle Tom's Cabin was one of the most wonderful and beautiful books that were ever written. Having got at a writer whom I admired, he was satisfied, but not for long. And you think very much of these theories of Darwin in England, do you not? I groaned inwardly and said we did. And what are the theories of Darwin? Imagine what followed. After which, why do you not like poetry? You shall have a very good university in London and so on Sunday morning at Soglio the quarantine men sat on the wall dangling their legs over the parapet and singing the same old tune over and over again and the same old words over and over again fu tradito fu tradito da una donna to them it was a holiday two gnomes came along and looked at me I asked the first how old it was it said fourteen. They both looked about eight. I said that the flies and the fowls ought to be put into quarantine, and the gnomes grinned and showed their teeth till the corners of their mouths met at the backs of their heads. The skeleton of a bird was nailed up against a barn, and I said to a man Aquila. He replied Aquila, and I passed on. The village boys came round to me and sighed while they watched me sketching, and the women came and exclaimed, Oh, che testa, che testa and the bells in the windows of the campanile began, and I turned and looked up at their beautiful lolling and watched their fitful tumble about us. They swung open mouthed like elephants with uplifted trunks, and I wished I could have fed them with buns. They were not like English bells, and yet they rang more all in glace than bells mostly do in Italy. They had got it, but they had not got it right. There used to be two crows, and when one disappeared the other came to the house where it had not been for a month. While I was sketching, it played with a woman who was weeding. It got on her back and tried to bite her hat. Then it got down and pecked at the nails in her boots and tried to steal them. It let her catch it and then made a little fuss, but it did not fly away when she let it go. It continued playing with her. Then it came to exploit me, but would not come close up. Signor Scartazzini says it will play with all the women of the place, but not with men or boys, except with him. Then there came a monk and passed by me. AND I KNEW I HAD SEEN HIM BEFORE, BUT COULD NOT THINK WHERE, TILL OF A SUDDEN IT FLASHED ACROSS ME THAT HE WAS VOLOROSO THE TWENTY-FOURTH, KING OF PAPHLAGONIA, NO DOUBT EXPIATING HIS OFFENSES. AND I WATCHED THE ANTS THAT WERE BUSY NEAR MY FEET, AND LISTENED TO THEM AS THEY TALKED ABOUT ME AND DISCUSSED WHETHER MAN HAS INSTINCT. WHAT IS HE DOING HERE? THEY SAID. HE WASN'T HERE YESTERDAY certainly they have no instinct they may have a low kind of reason but nothing approaching to instinct some of the london houses show signs of instinct gower street for example does really seem to suggest instinct but it is all delusive it is curious that these cities of theirs should always exist in places where there are no ants they certainly anthropomorphize too freely or is it perhaps that we for formicrophomorphize more than we should and silvio came by on his way to church it was he who taught all the boys in soglio to make a noise before he came up there was no sound to be heard in the streets except the fountains and the bells i asked him whether the curate was good to him See, si, he replied e abbastanza buono i should think old robin gray was abbastanza buono to mrs gray one of the little girls told me that silvio had so many sestimi and she had none I said at once, You don't want any centesimi." As soon as these words fell from my lips, I knew I must be getting old. And presently the devil came up to me. He was a nice, clean old man, but he dropped his H's, and that was where he spoiled himself. Or perhaps it was just that that threw me off my guard, for I had always heard that the Prince of Darkness was a perfect gentleman. He whispered to me that in the winter the monks of St. Bernard sometimes say matins overnight the blue of the mountain looks bluer through the chestnuts than through the pines the river is snowy against the verdi prati e selvi amene the great fat tobacco plant agrees with itself if not with us i never saw any plant look better in health the briar knows perfectly well what it wants to do and that it does not want to be disturbed it knows in fact all that it cares to know the question is how and why it got to care to know just these things and no others Two cheeky goats came tumbling down upon me and demanded salt, and the man came from the sawmill and with his great brown hands scooped the mud from the dams of the rills that watered his meadow, for the hour had come when it was his turn to use the stream. There were cowbells, mountain elderberries, and lots of flowers in the grass. There was the glacier, the roar of the river, and a plaintive little chapel on a green knoll under the great cliff of ice which cut the sky there was a fat crummy woman making hay she said buon giorno and the i o r of the giorno came out like oil and honey i saw she wanted a gossip she and her husband turned their scythes in two part note against note counterpoint but i could hear that it was she who was the canto fermo and he who was the counterpoint i peered down over the edge of the steep slippery slope which all had to be mown from top to bottom If hay grew on the dome of St. Paul's, these dreadful traders would gather it in, and presently the autumn crocuses would begin to push up their delicate naked snouts through the closely shaven surface. I expressed my wonder. "Siamo assati," said the fat, crummy woman. For what little things will not people risk their lives? So Smith and I crossed the Rangitata. So Esau sold his birthright. It was noon and I was so sheer above the floor of the valley and the Sun was so sheer above me that the chestnuts in the meadow of Bondo squatted upon their own shadows and the gardens were as though the valley had been paved with bricks of various colors the old grass-grown road ran below nearer the river where many a good man had gone up and down on his journey to that larger road where the reader and the writer shall alike join him fascination I know a man and one whom people generally call a very clever one who when his eye catches mine if i meet him at an home or an evening party beams upon me from afar with the expression of an intellectual rattlesnake on having espied an intellectual rabbit through any crowd that man will come sidling toward me ruthless and irresistible as fate while i foreknowing my doom sidle also himwards and flatter myself that no sign of my inward apprehension has escaped me Supreme occasions. Men are seldom more commonplace than on supreme occasions. I knew of an old gentleman who insisted on having the original polka played to him as he lay upon his deathbed. In the only well-authenticated words I have ever met with, as spoken by a man who knew he was going to be murdered, there is a commonness which may almost be called Shakespearean there had been many murders on or near some goldfields in new zealand about the years eighteen sixty three or eighteen sixty four i forget where but i think near the nelson goldfields and at last the murderers were taken one was allowed to turn queen's evidence and give an account of the circumstances of each murder one of the victims it appeared on being told they were about to kill him said if you murder me i shall be foully murdered whereupon they murdered him and he was foully murdered it is a mistake to expect people to rise to the occasion unless the occasion is only a little above their ordinary limit people seldom rise to the greater occasions they almost always fall to them it is only supreme men who are supreme at supreme moments they differ from the rest of us in this that when the moment for rising comes they rise at once and instinctively the aurora borealis I saw one once in the gulf of the St. Lawrence, off the island of Anticosti. We were in the middle of it, and seemed to be looking up through a great cone of light millions and millions of miles into the sky. Then we saw it farther off, and the pillars of fire stalked up and down the face of heaven like one of Handel's great bases. In front of my room at Montreal there was a veranda from which a rope was stretched across a small yard to a chimney on a stable roof over the way clothes were hung to dry on this rope as I lay in bed of a morning I could see the shadows and reflected lights from these clothes moving on the ceiling as the clothes were blown about by the wind the movement of these shadows and reflected lights was exactly that of the rays of an aurora borealis minus color I can conceive no resemblance more perfect they stalked across the ceiling with the same kind of movement absolutely a tragic expression The three occasions when i have seen a really tragic expression upon a face were as follows one when mrs inglis in my room at montreal heard my sausages frying as she thought too furiously in the kitchen she left me hurriedly with a glance and the folds of her dress as she swept out of the room were nibillin two once at dinner i sat opposite a certain lady who had a tureen of soup before her and also a plate of the same to which she had just helped herself There was meat in the soup, and I suppose she got a bit she did not like. Instead of leaving it, she swiftly, stealthily, picked it up from her plate when she thought no one was looking, and, with an expression which Mrs. Siddons might have studied for a performance of Clytemnestra, popped it back into the tureen. 3. There was an alarm of fire on an emigrant ship in mid-ocean when I was going to New Zealand, and the women rushed aft with faces as in a massacre of the innocents. THE WRATH TO COME On the Monte Generoso, a lady who sat next to me at the Table d'hote was complaining of a man in the hotel. She said he was a nuisance because he practiced on the violin. I excused him by saying that I supposed someone had warned him to fly from the wrath to come, meaning that he had conceptions of an ideal world and was trying to get into it. I heard a man say something like this many years ago, and it stuck by me. THE BEAUTIES OF NATURE a man told me that at some swiss hotel he had been speaking enthusiastically about the beauty of the scenery to a frenchman who said to him aimez-vous donc la beauté de la nature pour moi je l'ai à bord. the late king vittorio emmanuel cavalier negre at Casale montferrato told me not long since that when he was a child during the troubles of 1848 and 1849 the king was lunching with his cavalier negre's father who had provided the best possible luncheon in honor of his guest the king said i can eat no such luncheon in times like these give me some garlic the garlic being brought he ate it nothing else the bishop of Chichester at fiedo when I was at Fiedo in the Valleventina last summer, there was a lady there who remembered me in New Zealand. She had brought her children to Switzerland for their holiday—good people, all of them. They had friends coming to them, a certain canon and his sister, and there was a talk that the bishop of Chichester might possibly come to. In course of time the canon and his sister came. At first the sister, who was put to sit next to me at dinner, Was below zero and her brother opposite was hardly less freezing but as dinner wore on they thawed and from regarding me as the monster which in the first instance they clearly did began to see that I agreed with them in much more than they had thought possible by and by they were reassured became cordial and proved on acquaintance to be most kind and good they soon saw that I liked them and the canon let me take him where I chose i took him to the place where the woodsay grew and we found some splendid specimens i took him to marengo and showed him the double chancel coming back he said i had promised to show him some alternifolium i stopped him and said here is some for there happened to be a bit in the wall by the side of the path This quite finished the conquest and before long I was given to understand that the bishop really would come and we were to take him pretty near the would say and not tell him and he was to find them out for himself I have no doubt that the bishop had meant coming with the cannon but then the cannon had heard from the New Zealand lady that I was there and this would not do it all for the bishop anyhow the cannon had better exploit me by going first and seeing how bad I was so the cannon came said i was all right and in a couple of days or so the bishop and his daughters arrived the bishop did not speak to me at dinner but after dinner in the salon he made an advance in the matter of the newspaper and i replying he began a conversation which lasted the best part of an hour and during which i trust i behaved discreetly then i bade him good night and left the room next morning i saw him eating his breakfast and said good morning to him he was quite ready to talk we discussed the would-say Ilvinus, and agreed that it was a mythical species. It was said in botany books to grow near Guildford. We dismissed this assertion. But he remarked that it was extraordinary in what odd places we sometimes do find plants. He knew a single plant of Asplenium trichmenes, which had no other within thirty miles of it. It was growing on a tombstone which had come from a long distance and from a trichmenenes country it almost seemed as if the seeds and germs were always going about in the air and grew wherever they found a suitable environment i said it was the same with our thoughts the germs of all manner of thoughts and ideas are always floating about unperceived in our minds and it was astonishing sometimes in what strange places they found the soil which enabled them to take root and grow into perceived thought and action the bishop looked up from his egg and said that is a very striking remark And then he went on with his egg as though if i were going to talk like that he should not play any more thinking i was not likely to do better than this i retreated immediately and went away down to claro where there was a confirmation and so on to Bellinzona. in the morning i asked the waitress how she liked the bishop oh beaucoup beaucoup she exclaimed et je trouve sonnet vraiment noble 1886 at Peora i am confident that i have written the following note in one or other of the earlier of these volumes but i have searched my precious indexes in vain to find it no doubt as soon as i have retold the story i shall stumble upon it one day in the autumn of eighteen eighty six i walked up to piora from areolo returning the same day At Peora I met a very nice quiet man, whose name I presently discovered, and who, I have since learned, is a well-known and most liberal employer of labour somewhere in the north of England. He told me that he had been induced to visit Peora by a book which had made a great impression upon him. He could not recollect its title, but it had made a great impression upon him. Nor yet could he recollect the author's name, but the book had made a great impression upon him. He could not remember even what else there was in the book. The only thing he knew was that it had made a great impression upon him. This is a good example of what is called a residuary impression. Whether or no I told him that the book which had made such a great impression upon him was called Alps and Sanctuaries, see chapter six, and that it had been written by the person he was addressing, I cannot tell. It would be very like me to have blurted it all out and given him to understand how fortunate he had been in meeting me. This would be so fatally, like me, that the chances are ten to one that I did it. But I have, thank heaven, no recollection of sin in this respect, and have rather a strong impression that, for once in my life, I smiled to myself and said nothing. At Ferentino After dinner I ordered a coffee. The landlord, who also had had his dinner, asked me to be good enough to defer it for another year, and I assented. I then asked him which was the best inn at Sagni. He replied that it did not matter, that when a man had quattrini one albergo was as good as another. I said no, that more depended on what kind of blood was running about inside the albergatori than on how many quattrini the guest had in his pocket. He smiled and offered me a pinch of the most delicious snuff. His wife came and cleared the table, having done which she shed the water-bottle over the floor to keep the dust down. I am sure she did it all to all the blessed gods that live in heaven though she did not say so. End of section 22